Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. And neither of us knew too much about the Agnew story, as I think most people generally do not. And we kind of looked at it as this might be an interesting historical parallel to what we're now experiencing with the Trump presidency. The resignation of former Vice President Spiro Agnew is not something a lot of people know a lot about. But Rachel Maddow and Michael Yarvitz found it rich enough and relevant enough a subject to create a podcast series and book. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Michael Yarvitz is an Emmy and Peabody award-winning television producer and journalist. He also co-authored with Rachel Maddow the book Bagman, The Wild Crimes, Audacious Cover-Up, and Spectacular Downfall of a Brazen Crook in the White House. And he was the co-writer and executive producer of the Bagman podcast. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Oh, no, it's my pleasure. I read your book. It's a great book. I like histories. I like political histories. What we're going to talk about it, but before we get in, into that, you know, this is a journalism podcast. We talk, we talk to journalists about how they do, do their jobs, you know, what they're you know, thoughts on the industry and their careers are. Tell me a little bit about yourself. You know, how'd you end up a TV producer? You know, the author part came a little bit later and it was unexpected, but I became interested in journalism, I think, pretty early age. I grew up outside of Boston in a town called Billerica, Massachusetts. And I think around high school, I started volunteering for the weekly town newspaper, which was called the Billerica Minuteman, <laughs> which I think still exists. And, you know, I had my little notepad and I would run around town and interview town officials and, you know, local residents and go to town meetings. And I think, you know, from that stage pretty early on, I sort of knew that journalism was where I wanted to head. And that was kind of the launching point for me. And I ended up pursuing a degree in journalism and went to Syracuse University and went to the Newhouse School there and ended up getting a degree in broadcast journalism. Initially, I thought I wanted to be an on-air reporter, but I quickly realized I was not meant to be on camera. <laughs> and I also just liked producing behind the scenes a little bit better. So I pursued that sort of path of TV production. And that ultimately, after graduating from Syracuse, it led me to a job sort of an entry-level job at MSNBC down in New York, New Jersey. And that kind of launched what ended up becoming a, you know, pretty long career in TV producing. And you also work on Rachel's show, or at least you have? Yes, I, I did. <laughs> okay. So becoming an author was something that, that sort of wasn't in the planning. I could have gone online and, you know, looked for other videos where you were, you and Rachel were interviewed, where you're talking about, you know, how you came about this book. The thing that I don't understand about this book is almost kind of how it came about the idea for it, because Spiro Agnew just doesn't seem like somebody who is particularly timely or relevant to what's going on. Where did the germ of this idea come from? I mean, it came about in early 2018. Rachel and I had worked together at MSNBC for a long time, and I ended up leaving her show and pursuing some other projects in 2016, so sort of right at the beginning of the Trump presidency. And, you know, about two years into the Trump presidency it was 2018, and the 
the Robert Mueller Russia investigation was underway. And, and Rachel and I started talking about trying to, you know, sort of find a story from history that we could tell that would be resonant to the moment that we were living through, which was obviously, you know, the sort of not unprecedented, but very rare occurrence where a sitting president or vice president is under criminal investigation. And, you know, you, you find that that's a fairly short list. And, you know, the Richard Nixon Watergate parallel was the one that lots of people were sort of going for, understandably. And we sort of settled on this notion of, you know, that there might be something interesting to look into when it comes to Agnew. Because, you know, when you look at the history, Agnew is the only vice president who's ever been forced from office in disgrace. He's the only sitting president or vice president who's you know, pled to a felony. And so we pretty quickly sort of zeroed in on this idea of let's, let's look into Agnew. And neither of us knew too much about the Agnew story as I think you know, most, sort of, most people generally do not. And we kind of looked at it as this might be an interesting historical parallel to what we're now experiencing with the Trump presidency. Yeah, and it's not like thing that I've, I found so fascinating in the book, which you you both really succeed in, in painting the picture, the Nixon White House, when this was going on, like Rome is burning. And there's all this concern that in, in, within a very short time that, you know, the president's going to have to leave office, you know, and that was, you know, I'm, I'm an old man. So I, I, you know, I was old enough to remember, you know, not in great detail what was going on. And, and from my perspective, you know, being you know, I know about 14, 15, one day Agnew is no longer vice president. What I found interesting, though, was that there actually is a real important sort of link between between Agnew and what was going on with, with Trump. And that, that was really kind of the, the letter that I guess it was Bork had written, the Justice Department opinion on impeachment and, and whether a uh, sitting president or vice president can be prosecuted. I mean, was that something that was on your radar when you started this? Yes, it va vaguely was. I mean, you know, the sort of germane question during the entire Robert Mueller Russia investigation was this question of, you know, if there is criminal wrongdoing that's found as it related to Trump, could a criminal indictment even be brought against a sitting president? And, you know, th there, I think, was an understanding at the time in 2018 that, you know, Justice Department policy is that a sitting president can't be indicted. And, you know, the answer as to where that policy comes from is found 45 years earlier in not just the Nixon situation, but the Agnew, more specifically, really the Agnew crisis. And as you note, it was this Justice Department opinion written by Robert Bork, who was Solicitor General at the time, as well as an Office of Legal Counsel memo by a guy named Robert Dixon, which essentially attempted to figure out, okay, how do we deal with this situation of a president in Nixon and a vice president in Agnew, who both seem to be in some criminal jeopardy. And what they end up coming up with is this, you know, this sort of pair of opinions that say, okay, a sitting president can't be indicted, but a vice president, sitting vice president is, you know, liable to be indicted, is sort of subject to the criminal process. And so, you know, part of what we get into in the book and also the podcast is how that DOJ opinion came to be. And as you say, it's sort of, you know, there's a straight line from the Agnew crisis to 
Robert Mueller effectively saying, my hands are tied, I can't indict President Trump, even though there are you know, potential crimes committed here. And that's what's what's really kind of neat about the, your book, just on this one one aspect of it, to talk about it for a moment. That's something that people were, were talking about, you know, in 2018, and nobody really had a historical reference or a connection with it. And so, you know, writing this book, examining Agnew, at least it gives you that sort of footing is that, okay, this is kind of, you know, what it was about, why it happened. And you do spend a little time in there talking about, hey, this is just an opinion. <laughs> this is not something that that's, you know, there's any law tied to it, particularly, or precedent, real precedent. So I don't want to give away too much of the book, because it, there are a lot of interesting things that you uncover. But so you get this idea, you're going to you're going to write about Agnew, you know, how did the, the research process begin? You know, this was one of these things where Rachel and I sort of got this notion of looking into Agnew. And then we, you know, essentially pitched it to the bosses at MSNBC to say, hey, could we spend six or seven months just looking into this one story, which is, you know, it's a luxury in journalism to be able to spend so much time on on one story. And so very quickly after getting the green light, we sort of just dug right into the research phase of it, which was going and visiting various archives and libraries across the country to, you know, really try to dig up as many documents from the investigation and from the case as we could find. And, you know, it involved the Nixon Library out in California, the Spiro Agnew Archives of the University of Maryland, you know, the U.S. Attorney in Maryland who spearheaded the case, George Bell, he's, you know, his papers are held at Frostburg State University in Maryland. And so what we did was really dive into archival research for a period of, of weeks and months. And you know, ultimately we ended up coming up with some really interesting information from that. But the first phase of it was really diving into the research. And then you know, phase two essentially was trying to track down, okay, who was alive, who is still alive from this investigation from this period that we can track down and go talk to. The book is really a testament to you know, research reporting, going into those archives, you know, finding letters. I mean, you were surfacing things that, you know, nobody had read before, really. You brought forward facts that were really kind of surprising. And what was amazing is, especially from the records that came from Agnew, there were things in there that, you know, I don't know if you would say would incriminate him, but certainly would put him in a bad light, but that they kept, but nobody knew about, or it hadn't surfaced by the, you know, the wider awareness and that's, that's what's so wonderful about doing that type of reporting. You, you can dig that stuff. But then you go to the extra step, not the extra step, you go to the next step, which is, you know, locating people. You know, how difficult was it to track down some of these people? It was, you know, it took some legwork to figure out where everybody is. You know, it's 45 years after this investigation is has been completed and, you know, sort of tracking down, A, who's who's still alive to talk about it, and B, you know, where are they? Can we go visit them? And so that was a process unto itself was reaching out to these folks, these prosecutors who were involved in the investigation and saying, you know, it's nearly five decades later, but we'd love to talk to you about this. And, you know, what we ended up doing was going and visiting each one of these, each one of these, these guys who were involved in the investigation and sitting down for hours and just sort of reliving what it was like to go through it. And also, you know, as you allude to, we found some stuff in the archives 
that even these guys, the prosecutors on the case, didn't ever know about. So it was also, you know, presenting to them some information that, that became news to them. You know, in part, I think the Agnew case had been so kind of forgotten by history that not a lot of people had, A, gone to track down the archives and look through the documents, but also to go talk to those who were involved in it. And so that was a really, really exciting part of this. So at what point did this become a book and a podcast? I mean, it would seem like, you know, the two of you were, were in a position where if you wanted to, you know, barring, you know, getting a lot of money to help you do produce it, but you could have done something, you know, video on, you know, for the network, for the cable station or for the cable network. You know, what made you decide to go the direction that you did? You know, we originally talked about maybe, you know, maybe we should just do this on Rachel's nightly show, or maybe we should try to do some kind of an MSNBC special on it. But pretty quickly, you know, early on, she and I both sort of loved the idea of doing it as a podcast and just sort of telling this one story and breaking it up over, you know, six or seven episodes. And it's one of the things that, you know, I think is exciting to me and exciting for the world of journalism at large, which is that this is, you know, this is a new, not new, but this is an exciting platform to be able to tell a story, an investigative story at length, if you want to. So we, and, you know, it should be said, inspired by podcasts like Slow Burn about the Watergate scandal and various other ones of that genre, we sort of thought, you know, this story has so many different facets to it that maybe we ought to try to tell it as a podcast. So that's, you know, sort of where we decided to go. And then off of the sort of popularity, luckily of the podcast, we end up adapting it into a book as well. Oh, interesting. Well, I guess that's nice because through the podcast, you've, you know, you've organized it, you've done your research, you've organized it, you've got these voices and you know how to tell this, this story. One would hope that, that writing the book off of your scripts and, and the notes that, that sort of fed the podcast would maybe make that process easier. Did it? Yeah, I think it did. We had a, a little bit of a head start, which is, as you say, we, we kind of had the entirety of the podcast to work from as a starting point. But, you know, part of the reason we, we ended up wanting to do it as a book as well was because after we released the podcast, Rachel and I just sort of kept doing reporting on the story. And we were, you know, even though the, the podcast had come and gone, we were still fascinated by it. And one of, one of the things that we ended up getting a hold of was all of these papers from Spiro Agnew's post-vice presidential life, which sort of detailed what became of Agnew after he left the vice presidency. And that was something we didn't have when we were doing the podcast. We only came to it afterwards. And it's this, you know, treasure trove of, of documents and, and material that that was in part what inspired us to say, you know, there's more to there's more to tell here. And so our goal and our hope was that the book wouldn't just be sort of a, a recasting of the podcast, but an opportunity to, to sort of shine some light on some new information. Now, Rachel's written books before, hasn't she? She has. Yeah, she's she has two previous books. Yeah. Had you written anything this long before? No, this was my this is my first book, which is a which is a daunting experience, but you know an exciting one. So what you know what was that experience like for you, a, a TV producer? Now you're you're co-writing a, a book. As I said towards the beginning, it was never part of the plan necessarily to to write a book, but it was it was a really fulfilling, interesting process. 
because it's just different, you know, it's, it's storytelling on a different platform. And so I'd long been a TV producer in which you're sort of telling stories one particular way, doing it for a podcast, you're sort of doing a different type of storytelling. And the book process was an entirely separate challenge. And so to me, it was, it was challenging because it's not something that I'd ever done before, but it was also fulfilling in the sense of we had so many, even though we did it as a seven episode podcast, we had so much left on the cutting room floor, essentially. And so to be able to use all of the material, you know, often I think when you're producing something for TV or, you know, doing print journalism, you've, you feel like, oh, I've got all of this extra stuff that I, I didn't have a place to put it. And writing a book, you have a place to put it, which was, which was really nice. And it also just makes me eternally impressed by, by people who do it because it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of hard work, but it was a great experience. Yeah. And it takes a lot of focus too. Yeah. You know, it's a different type of writing, a different type of sort of assembling something and telling a story. You talked about the people that you interviewed. I, I approached this backwards from how you guys did it. I read the book first, then I went back and I listened to the podcast. And what I found fascinating is you did find these people who were, you know, 45 years later, and some of them were still pretty angry <laughs> about how things kind of turned out which was fun. It was fun for, to read it, but then to listen onto the podcast, hearing them talking about it, you know, it was still fresh to them in so many ways. That was surprising. Yeah. It's one of those stories where it's, you know, essentially the good guys get the job done in a sense, but also they're left feeling like justice didn't truly prevail. And so, you know, the crux of the book and the podcast, I think is sort of based on these three young federal prosecutors based out of Baltimore were all, you know, they're young. They're about 30 years old at the time. And they, they essentially crack the case and figure out that the sitting vice president is an active criminal. And so, you know, they, this investigation obviously meant a lot to them. And once they moved the case to the, to the justice department and to the attorney general, Elliot Richardson, you know, it became clear to them that there were other bigger stakes involved in terms of, you know, needing to get Agnew out of the line of succession as quickly as possible because, you know, if Nixon went down in Watergate, which could have happened at any moment, and Agnew was still in place, then, you know, we'd have an even bigger crisis on our hands. And so, you know, ultimately the story we tell is the Justice Department, Richardson and these prosecutors having to cut a deal and in some ways let Agnew walk. And as you say, you know, these prosecutors, even 45 years later, they are still they still feel very passionately that Agnew should have faced the justice that they thought that he deserved, which was, you know, which was jail time. And Agnew ends up making a plea deal and, you know, I won't ruin the whole thing, but, um, but when you talk to these prosecutors, even 45 years later, they still feel that justice wasn't fully served, even if maybe the national interests of the country were. Yeah. One of my favorite parts of the book, and I, th I think it's on the podcast as well, is the uh, surprising guest appearance of George H.W. Bush in the story. <laughs> it's like, oh, and he was involved too in some way. So it's, it's so crazy that when you start digging the things that you're able to find, you know, what was it that stood out to you most about this story? I think what, what you're mentioning there is certainly one of those things, which you know, when you approach a story like this that you maybe you don't really know 
the entire picture, you end up through the research and reporting process, discovering things that shock you and that that are incredibly newsworthy. And so, you know, we had that experience here, which was digging through the archives and finding documents that pointed to this potentially criminal obstruction of justice scheme that involved the future president, George H.W. Bush, who was the Republican Party chairman at the time. And so, you know, that's one of those moments where you think, boy, this is this is quite a story. And you know, it's, it makes it worth it to be on the ground and, and doing the sort of reporting and digging something up that maybe sort of slipped through the cracks of time a little bit. So I think that process of reporting out that part of the story and, and finding the documents that corroborated it and bringing that information to the prosecutors, that was something that we didn't expect that we would find going into the story. And, you know, hopefully it, it added an important part of this of history to the record. Yeah. You know, no matter how you slice it, it's a really weird story. Everything, all aspects of it, the deeper you get into it, the stranger it seems to get, you know, everything seems so unlikely and so crazy. And we talked at the beginning about, you know, the relatability of current day, you know, it's not that far back, 45 years that the world hasn't changed that much. Our politics hasn't changed that much. It's just, you know, different players, you know, trying to, do the same types of deals and try to get away with this with the same type of stuff. So it's your first book, you know, what was it like being a first time author? You, you know, I saw that you, you did interviews with Rachel and you went out and pushed the book. Was that a, a fun experience? It was, it was, you know, we released the book still kind of in the middle of the pandemic. And so we unfortunately couldn't do the whole, you know, go across the country and meet lots of people and do book events and all that. But we did sort of a virtual version of that, which was a lot of fun. Rachel, you know, went on various late night shows and talk shows. And it was a different experience for me because I'm used to being sort of behind the scenes, not usually sort of out front, but it was great. I mean, it was just being able to bring this story of Spiro Agnew to maybe a new generation of folks who haven't known it or people who lived through it, but didn't remember it. Just sort of being able to bring bring the spirit of Agnew and what happened back has been a fun experience. Yeah, certainly. And it, and it was, you know, it turned out to be timely. It's a really great story. I, you know, I encourage everybody to read the book. Before we wrap up, I did want to ask you, you know, as I said at the very beginning, this is a podcast about journalists. And, you know, a lot of the the people who listen to it are, are journalists who you know, or at various stages in their careers, what advice would you give to somebody who wanted to, you know, pursue a career behind the camera in TV? I, I think the first or the primary thing I would say is to focus on your writing, writing specifically. I think whatever facet of journalism you end up in, whether it's print or whether it's television, you know, if you can write, then there's going to be a, a place for you, I think. And in part, I think it's what makes this this area of podcasting a real opportunity. And, and I think you know, you know more about that probably than anybody, which is it's an area of journalism now where you can investigate a story and you can present it in long form. And it's a very kind of low, low barrier to entry in terms of the technological challenges. 
And so I think, you know, at a time when things are tough in some areas of the world of journalism, I think the, the podcasting world presents a real opportunity. And also, you know, just in terms of getting into TV production, you know, I think it's just honing your storytelling skills, because if, if you can tell a story well, then you're sort of ahead of the game in whatever area of journalism you end up in. And to me, where that starts is just honing your writing skills and practicing and, and just trying out different types of, of writing for different mediums. And, you know, if you can do that, I think you'll sort of get noticed and you'll be able to advance in, in your career. To me, it just starts with being able to write and tell stories. Yeah. And the great thing about writing is, I mean, the more you put into it, the more you work at it and use it in different ways, the more it sort of develops your ability to encapsulate a story very quickly and figure out the best way to tell it. That applies with everything. I mean, you talk about podcasting, but in every aspect of, of this industry. So yeah, I mean, that's great advice. Michael, thank you for coming on the podcast. You know, I'll say it again. It's a great book. I encourage people to buy it and read it. I encourage people to, to listen to the podcast. And thanks again for being on the podcast. Thank you, Michael. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.